If you've got your copy of God's Word, let me, let me just take you on a little bit of a journey here and show you why we're doing what we're doing. I had a man walk up to me in the Dan Hotel uh, in the restaurant there. He came up, introduced himself. He's from another state. And he said, I'm here on tour. And he says, I have listened to what you're doing at Valleydale for you guys that work back there in the sound booth and you put all this stuff on. You're a big part of ministry and you don't even realize it. This guy says, I've listened to every one of your church history series three times in preparation of coming to Israel. So I was stunned. Of course, I didn't know who the guy was and I couldn't tell you now who he was uh, or who he is. But um, that's interesting. I said, well, good. I said, because you, you're listening to what more, um, most of my membership won't listen to it, but I'm glad you are. Good. So Hebrews chapter 13, listen to the one word. I just finished uh, an intensive PhD seminar on the book of Hebrews. Just wrapped it up, and I did one on Hebrews and one on Ephesians. I'm a glutton for punishment. And uh, both of them, um, pretty intensive. I've come to understand that the book of Hebrews is a sermon, by the way. Uh, if you've ever read it, you, it is meant to be heard. Uh, this was a sermon that was preached or was to be preached uh, to a congregation. And uh, the preacher, we don't really know who wrote. A lot of people think Paul. Others think other people wrote it. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit uh, wrote the book of Hebrews, gave the book of Hebrews to whoever wrote it. He gets down to the 13th chapter, and I want you to listen to what he says. He's giving some of these little, small, at, at the end where you're just throwing your points there <laughs> out, he comes and he says this in verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. He said, you go back and you think in your life of those men who preached to you, who taught you, who shared the word of God, men or women, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a pastor, uh, maybe uh, a, a, an older person that uh, just spent time with you and poured the word of God. He said, remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you and you consider the result of their conduct. Go back and look at their lives. Go back and think about their lives. Go back and think about how their lives ended, how God moved in their lives, how their commitment to God and their dedication to the Lord had an impact on their life and how God moved in their life. Go back and think about that and look at that. And he says, then imitate their faith. Now that's what we're doing on these Wednesday nights. We're going back and we're looking at the righteous of God through the last 2,000 years. And we're considering how they lived their lives and what took place in their lives and uh, we're to imitate their faith. But now look at Romans chapter 9 because you go the other direction. Romans chapter 9, Paul's going to talk about Pharaoh in verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, or for the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I raised you up. Now, God's speaking to Pharaoh, and he says, it's for this reason that I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my power might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. He looked at Pharaoh and he said, I'm taking your rejection of me and I'm going to show the world what happens to a wicked man with you. You become the illustration of a wicked, unrighteous man and what happens to a wicked and unrighteous man. So the Word of God tells us to look at both. Look at the righteous and remember them and imitate that. Then look at the wicked and see what happens to the wicked Now, let me get you to do this. Go to Psalm 37, because the psalmist there is going to talk about this very thing. The two things that I've just shown you in the New Testament. Psalm 37, verse 35, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Now he says, I've seen this, the the wicked people just kind of look like this great big luxuriant, healthy, well-nurtured tree just expanding itself out, right? You ever felt like that? Look at the wicked and see how they prosper. He says, I've seen that. Then Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. And I sought for him, but he could not be found. He said he passed away, and he said there was nothing about him that was left. Mark the blameless man. And behold, the upright, for the man of peace will have posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them and delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. He says, you you just mark this, you take note. You watch the wicked and what happens to them in the end, and you, you watch the righteous man, and you see what happens to him and how God's going to take care of the righteous. Well, that's exactly what we're doing in church history. We're just noting. We're going through church history, and we're noting the righteous and the wicked and what happens uh, in both situations And that uh, is going to bring me back to where I left you uh, two weeks ago. Uh, In the meantime, Barry shared with you about the English Reformation. But I'm going to get you back across the English Channel, back on the continent of Europe, and I'm going to talk to you about um, the Reformation itself or leading up to it. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you about seven things that led up to the Reformation. The Reformation just didn't happen. There were things that led up to it, important things that led up to it. I ended with the Renaissance. You remember from your days in school, the Renaissance, French word meaning rebirth, and in the Renaissance, the best picture I know of of the Renaissance is the school of the philosophers that I showed everybody. You've got Plato pointing up, and you've got Aristotle going, doing this, going down. It's all down here. Plato, you're wrong. It's all down here. It's all about man. It's all about now. It's all about me. Now, that was the Renaissance, and it's all humanistic. Every bit of it is about man. That's the emphasis right there. That's where I left you. Now, I'm going to give you one other thing that begins to shape uh, this time period 
and why the Reformation just seemed to grip all of Europe and make such a dramatic change. The other thing was this, the Inquisition. You have in the 1400s, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese Inquisition. The Inquisition basically was this. We are going to find those who do not agree with the church and we will torture them until they will agree with the church. And they devised all kind of uh, instruments of torture, all kind of things that they did to torture people. Now, there, were, there was a group uh, in the Roman Catholic Church called Dominicans. You know what Dominicans means? You know where it comes from? Domini, God, canis, dog. God's dogs. Why are they called God's dogs? Because they hunted out heretics. (laughs) And when they found them, the Dominicans would torture them. And if you did not recant and you did not agree with the Roman church, then they just put you to death. That didn't, uh, if uh, torturing you didn't do it, then they would just put you to death. So that's what sets up. You've got all this inquisition. They were killing Jews, by the way, by the tens of thousands. And uh, when that didn't satisfy them, then they started in on all of those who just disagreed with the church. Now that just set up this whole situation where Europe was just rife. It was just a powder keg about to go off. And so you're going to have this little German monk who's going to come and put this protest up against what was happening in the church, and all of Europe is going to get swept up into it. It's the only way you can really explain it is that, that all of Europe was so ready for this to happen. But Luther was not the first guy um, to really be a reformer. I'm going to give you three guys tonight that are very important in the life uh, of Christianity and Christian history. And the first one was a professor. He went to Oxford. His name is John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford. He went there, graduated, uh, was so brilliant that they brought him on to teach there. And uh, he was committed to one thing, and what he was committed to was the study of the Word of God. And so as he studied the Word of God, do you know what the big upset was in Wycliffe's day? It was where did authority come from? Where did anyone get the authority? Where did kings get their authority? This whole thing of... um, of divine right to rule. Uh, Where did that come from? Because the king said, I am king because God chose me to be king. The pope said the same thing. I am pope because God chose me to be pope. And so you had this whole thing of rex, lex, or lex, rex. Do you know what that is? Rex, lex, in the Latin, rex is king and lex is law. So rex, lex is The king is law. Anything the king says is law. The other side of that is lex rex. The law is king. It is what rules. Well, that's where Wycliffe came down. 
He came down on the side of law having the authority. And basically what that meant was this. For him, it meant that all the bishops of the church, all the priests of the church, even the pope, uh, if they did not agree with the New Testament, they should be put out. Now let me tell you, that did not go over very well. Nobody in the Roman church was very happy with that, but that's the conclusion that Wycliffe came to. And that was this, that they were men who were to be under the authority of the Word of God, which led to a second thing. The second thing about Wycliffe was this, is that Wycliffe believed that the, that the church should follow the pattern of the New Testament. That is, that what we see of the church in the New Testament is what should be in the church in our day. And so he felt like that the church had gotten far away from what the New Testament said. And I'll give you for, it, for instance, he said that there is no distinction in the New Testament. He's exactly right. There's no distinction in the New Testament between a bishop and a priest. In the New Testament, every pastor was called a bishop. So there, were, there was not these levels. And he went on to say that means the same thing for the pope that you don't see a pope in Scripture. What you see are pastors in the New Testament. Well, let me tell you, that didn't go over well. The third thing that he um, came to understand was this, is that all of these sacraments that they had in the church were not biblical. Praying to the saints, show it to me in the New Testament. The big thing for Wycliffe was transubstantiation. He says, it's not there. He says, the church is wrong. The Roman church is wrong. Uh, that the New Testament doesn't teach that the bread and the wine become the actual body and the blood of Christ. That didn't go over very well. The fourth thing was this. He came to the place where he believed in sola scriptura. This is, lo this is long before Luther. And that is that the Word of God was the final authority, not a council of the church, not the early church fathers, not a pope who spoke ex cathedra, but the Word of God is the authority for the church, that the Word of God is the authority for all the people. This is what we are to put ourselves under, and that is the Word of God. Now, what this guy did was this. He was a college professor. He got a bunch of freshmen and a bunch of sophomores, and he started teaching this to them. He started teaching them the Word of God, and he started sending them out to preach and teach all over England, and they called them what? Lollards. Lollards. What does Lollard mean? I can't remember to save my life. I've been up since 1.30. I've got uh, jet lag. So I don't know what it means. Y'all go look at That's your homework. Go look it up. Um, they would go out all over, and this is what he did. He believed this so much that he translated the New Testament into English. That's what Wycliffe did. Uh, he wanted to be able to take the Word of God and put it in the hand of the people. Well, 
He died before the Roman church could get him. Now, they tried to get him. They wanted to get him. They wanted to bring him to trial. They wanted to bring him before uh, a synod. They wanted to bring him before a council. But he died uh, before they could get their hands on him. But they so hated Wycliffe because of what he taught and the impact that he had that when they found his grave, they dug his body up and burned his body. And then they took the ashes of Wycliffe and they took them down to the Thames River and they scattered them in the river itself. And they thought, we are done with this guy. However, um, I can't remember if it's uh, Scott Latteret or which church historian says that the ashes of Wycliffe just diffused all over Europe and infected the entire population. That is, he had an impact all over Europe. He sets up what's going to happen with Luther. Now, let me give you another person, and this guy is not, um, he's not an ordained preacher. He's not a college professor. He is a very successful um, businessman, and his name is Peter Waldo. I mentioned him to you a couple of weeks ago, this guy right here. Peter Waldo was a very successful, wealthy businessman. And what happened to him was this. He began to read Scripture, and he got under some conviction. And, of course, he knew the Lord, but um, he began to uh, think about how God wanted to use him. He had a friend one night, a young friend who died in the middle of a supper, in the middle of a meal. And at, from that moment on, it changed this guy's life. He started, he decided he was going to live his life totally committed to the Lord. So he gave his wife so much money for, to take care of her, and he gave the rest away. And uh, he was committed to this. He was committed to the Word of God. It's interesting how when you get committed to this thing right here, not this thing right here, but this thing right here, this is what will change your life. Not a church service, not a Sunday school class, not something like that, but this thing right here is what will change your life. And that's what you continue to see. I'm just I'm going to point back to what the writer of Hebrews said, go back and look at those. The men who had the greatest impact on my life were men that this thing was the authority in their lives. That's what you're seeing here. Well, he goes out and he becomes a lay preacher. He becomes a lay preacher, pulls a group of people around him that we eventually, be, they become known as the Waldensians. And um, he, is, um, he comes to an understanding that the uh, Roman church and is teaching doctrine that is in error. He doesn't believe in transubstantiation, and he doesn't believe in purgatory. And so he starts um, to look for a cleric that he could hire and that he could pay who would translate the Word of God into the language. I believe he was Czech and who would, uh, who would translate it into a French-Czech um, blend of language for the common people of that day in the area where he lived. So this guy, now before Luther, has come to the understanding of sola scriptura. The Word of God is our authority in life. Now here is the third person right here. 
It's going to be Jan Hus, that guy right there. Now, this guy, uh, out of all of them, fascinates me the most. Um, he was um, put to death in 1415. Uh, they burned him at the stake in Constance. I went to his church. I went to Bethlehem Chapel there in uh, Prague. Uh, walked and tromped all over Prague just thinking of this guy and what he went through. He was a priest. But as a priest, he started reading the New Testament and he came to the understanding that this was the authority and not a man who sat on a throne in Rome. This is the amazing thing to me is how these guys all came to the understanding that the Word of God was to be our authority. And because of that, they took him out and they burned him. Now, that is right outside, I believe, Bethlehem Chapel right there. Now, do you see what he's got? He's got a Bible in his hand, and you see what he's doing. He's pointing to it. Now, that's what the Roman church could not stand. They could not stand um, any kind of attack against the authority of the church or the authority of the pope. And yet every one of these guys going to hold up the word of God and say, this is the authority right here. So when they put him to death, when they burn him at Constance, uh, they make fun of his name because his last name, Hus, means goose. And so they shout at him, we're going to cook your goose. We're going to cook your Hus. Well, that's his name. Now, let me tell you, most people in the early times when they started burning people um, would die of smoke inhalation before they would burn. So the Roman church became an expert in how to burn somebody in such a way that they would die from the burning and not from smoke inhalation. Now, that's what they became proficient in. And so when they burned him, uh, as he was burning, he shouted back out to them these words. You may cook this goose, but God will raise up a swan you cannot fry. Now, those were the last words of John Huss. Jan Hus. Is you may cook this goose, but God will raise up a swan you cannot fry. That was in 1415. 102 years later, Martin Luther, on October the 31st of 1517, would walk down to the church in Wittenberg and would nail his 95 Theses to that door, uh, to that church. And his prophecy came true. He was exactly, he was exactly right. Now you're going to come to Luther. And Luther is just going to take a little bit of time. Uh, Luther is um, one of the great figures in human... You can't talk... I heard a Catholic priest who is a historian say, you cannot look at human history and not talk about Martin Luther, which uh, to get a Catholic to even mention his name is rare. But he's right. Uh, you can't look at Martin Luther. You can't look at history and not talk about Martin Luther. Uh, now, before I get to Luther, let me jump ahead of the Reformation and tell you what's going to happen at the end of the Reformation or by the time the Reformation is winding down. You're going to have what is called the Counter-Reformation. 
The Counter-Reformation is going to be the Catholic Church trying to go back and undo what Luther and Hus and uh, uh, the Waldensians and Wycliffe, what all of these guys have done, the Roman church is going to go back, is going to try to undo what they've done. And uh, what that's going to do is it's going to throw Europe into, the, into an unbelievable bloody war. Eight million people will die in Europe in the 30 years war. It takes place from 1618 until 1648. Is that right? Is that 30 years? 1618 until 1648. Over 8 million people will die in the 30 years war. And all of Europe will get to the place. They'll, they'll end it at a place, in a, in a, in a place called the Peace, Peace of Westphalia. And uh, all of Europe will just say, we just got to stop. We got to quit. We got to, whoever you are, if you're Catholic, just go there and be Catholic. If you're Protestant, just go there and be Protestant. But we just can't kill anymore. We can't do anymore. This would be the bloodiest wars that Europe would see until a little short Corsican corporal would become a general and seize power in France and his name is Napoleon Bonaparte. That's how bad this will be. That's what will take place in Europe. Now, let me back up and get back to Luther. Let me back up to young Luther. Luther's father was a miner. And he saw Luther, his boy, Martin Luther, and he knew this boy was brilliant. He said, this kid is just smart. And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him a lawyer. I'm going to send him to law school. He'll go to law school. He'll be successful. He'll make money. And what's going to happen is this, is he's going to take care of the rest of the family. That's, he's going to take care of us because he's so smart. Well, Luther did that. In 1505, Luther goes off to law school. And uh, he's been gone for months to law school. And he comes home. He's coming home to visit. And I've got a short clip, and I'm going to show you where all this begins with Martin Luther. It's kind of interesting. How do you get Luther out of law school? Well, a thunderstorm will do it. Luther, on his way home from law school, um, gets caught in a thunderstorm. Now you say, well, now that's bad and lightning's popping all around you. Anybody would be scared. Yeah, but Luther, when he was a little boy, had a friend who was struck and killed by lightning. And he was always terrified of lightning storms, of thunderstorms. And so on his way home, this young man who is in law school gets caught in this thunderstorm and he falls down when lightning hits a tree near him and he begins to cry out to St. Anne. Now, Anne, St. Anne, where did the saints come from? Oh, Lord, I'm going to have to go back and start all over with you, aren't I? 
I told you all of that was brought into the church when they just brought in all of these pagans who used to worship all of these gods and they transferred those things to, the, to people that they called saints, all of these things, and was the patron saint of children. So here's Luther falling down in the mud and he's crying out to Saint Anne. Saint Anne, Saint Anne, save me, save me. Don't let me die. If you save me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. And so the next thing that you see of Luther is this. There he is in the cathedral at Erfurt on his face stretched out having taken the vows of a monk. His father got furious. He wouldn't tell his dad what he was doing. He wouldn't tell his dad that he, not was, that he was not going back to law school, but he went to Erfurt and he got in school there to become a monk, the study for the priesthood. And when his dad found out, his dad wouldn't talk to him at all. They cut off all communication with him. Um, I don't think he even came to see him graduate. He didn't come to his graduation uh, his dad was so upset, but there Luther is, face down, making the sign of the cross, taking the vows of a priest, and he becomes a monk, and he is miserable, miserable. He hates everything uh, that he's doing, nothing satisfying, and he lives in absolute terror and fear that God is going to strike him dead. He can't get beyond this thing of that lightning striking, and he thinks God is going to strike him dead no matter what he does. And Luther does everything that he can to resolve his sin. But he struggles with sin in his life. He struggles with sin, and he wants to know, what do I do? How do I get rid of my sin? How can I be right before God? How can I enter heaven when I've got all of this sin? And so he does everything that the church tells him to do. In fact, Luther in those days really wrecks his health for the rest of his life. He goes on a fast, one fast after another, one after another, one after another. I told you, diets are out of hell. That's what they are. And that's what happens. They're horrible. They're terrible for you. So go eat the fat and be happy. Rejoice in the Lord. He wrecks his health. He, he won't eat. He won't eat. He won't eat. He fasts. He fasts. He won't sleep in a bed. He sleeps on the floor because he thinks if I sleep on the floor and I deny myself the bed, uh, that will atone for my sin. In the wintertime, he won't use a blanket. He sleeps on the cold stone floor without a blanket in the wind. He shivers. He nearly freezes himself to death because he thinks that way I'm going to atone for my sin. Um, he, uh, he goes back again to the fasting thing, and he nearly breaks himself with not eating and not even drinking till he makes himself sick, thinking if I deny myself food, if I deny myself water... If I deny myself any pleasure whatsoever, it will atone for my sin and I'll be saved. But he never gets to the place where his sin is atoned for. He goes to confession. He goes to confession and he takes hours every day in confession, confessing every single thought, every little thing, every word that he thinks might have offended God 
He has this God that is this huge ogre that is waiting just to strike him dead. It gets so bad that the other priests in that monastery run from him. You ever seen anybody in church like that? That when they come, people run? They run from Luther. They will not hear. They refuse. We're not going to listen to your confession today. And so Luther is this miserable, miserable man in the ministry, and he doesn't know what to do with his sin, and he doesn't know what he can do to earn the favor of God. You remember that scene in The Sound of Music where um, Maria is there in the convent and all the little nuns come out singing, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Martin Luther? I'll tell you next year. <laughs> 